You're listening to WLXU 93.9 LPFM Lexington, Lexington Community Radio. And this is Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. I'm an advocate for women's rights in childbirth, founder of Birth Monopoly, co-creator of the Exposing the Silence Project, a national photography project on birth trauma, and former vice president of Improving Birth, the nation's largest consumer-based maternity care advocacy organization. You can learn more about my work at birthmonopoly.com. Today, we are talking to Jennifer Smith. She is an exercise physiologist who works in fitness and teaches kinesiology at the university where she lives in Las Cruces, New Mexico. She had a cesarean with her first baby for breach, then a vaginal birth with her second baby over the border in El Paso, Texas. She was planning to have a cesarean for a big baby with her third, but when she went into labor three weeks early, she changed her mind, which we will talk about today. Jennifer has been married for 13 years and has three boys and a stepson. Hi, Jennifer. Hello. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So you and I have been communicating a little bit over the months about what happened when you went into the hospital in labor for your third baby and then sort of the subsequent, the the events after that with your communications with the hospital after that. Can you just start off telling us what happened when you were in labor, when you went into the hospital in labor? So I didn't even know I was in labor, which uh, my water broke, which didn't happen in my first two pregnancies. So I wasn't even sure my water broke. So I went to the hospital. Um, I had talked to the doctor before and it was a doctor I had never met who was not in my current OB's practice. So I didn't know him but I trusted my OB. So I went to the hospital and that was about, I don't know, 10 o'clock at night that this, of course, that I finally realized my memories had ruptured probably at 3 PM earlier that day. So I go into the hospital and I still haven't changed my mind at that point. I still think I'm doing a C-section. So I go in, they have me sign the paperwork. I sign the paperwork for the C-section because I'm assuming that the doctor has to come in and talk to me and go over that paperwork. That's my assumption. So they tell me that my membranes have indeed ruptured. They do the test. They set me up on the monitor. So they're monitoring my baby. They asked me, they said, oh, do you feel that? Which is this intense pain in my pelvis, which I had been having for the last month, telling my regular OB that I don't think these are false contractions. I think they're real. Of course, I never have them when I go to the OB office. And many times I can't get rid of them. So they're like, that's a contraction. I said, oh, well, I've been having those for the last month. So this is my fourth pregnancy. I did have a miscarriage in between my two older sons. So my fourth pregnancy, membranes ruptured. I'm in labor and the doctor doesn't want to come in and deliver me via C-section. So he calls and gets an update and he schedules the C-section for 7 a.m. They were just going to like leave you in labor? Yes, I guess they didn't think that it, because I wasn't, because it was so deep, it was a different kind of pain than I had with my other kids. So I could handle the pain. With my other two, they were, the contractions were in front. They would keel me over three to five minutes apart. These were sporadic, but they were very intense in my pelvis. And that's what caused my water to break, I would assume. And so, yeah, so they left me all night in labor, ruptured membranes, fourth pregnancy, C-section scheduled for 7 a.m. So they asked me if I want an epidural. I said, no, the contractions aren't bad. I'm, I'm okay. So at 5 a.m., 
well, and before that too, I'm starving, right? I haven't eaten. I'm not, I'm not thinking my water broke. So I'm asking for food, begging for food. And of course, since they're going to do a C-section, they won't allow me to have any food. They won't allow me to have any water. I'm asking for water. They give me ice chips. And then later they take those ice chips away as well because they're mad at the nurse for giving me the ice chips because I'm not supposed to have anything, you know, for that minimal amount that I might throw up via epidural. So I feel my blood sugar dropping. I tell them, I'm like, my blood sugar is dropping. I need something. You need to give me some kind of glucose in the IV. I need, I need something. Um, I don't know if they ever did, you know, finally it subsided. So, you know, we're up all night because that stupid monitor that's on you, it's always beeping and they have to adjust it. And then at 5 a.m., around 5 a.m., I tell the nurses, I'm like, my contractions are getting stronger. So the young nurse comes to vag exam me. She doesn't know what she's doing. She can't do the vag exam. She's hurting me. They finally get another nurse to come in who I, I would assume is the head nurse, more experienced. Vag exams me. I'm six centimeters dilated at that time. I'm in active labor. Oh, crap. They left me all night, right? So they call the doctor with an update. And he prescribes tributylin to stop the contractions. And so they tell me that he wants to stop the contractions. Um, they tell me that it's going to, you know, have my race, my heart racing, um, all of these other side effects. And I said, no, you're not giving that to me. And at that time, I realized, oh, my goodness, I'm in active labor. <laughs> the whole point, you know, my baby's three weeks early. He's not going to be close to nine pounds. I don't have to do a C-section. I don't want to go through that again. I remember my first one. It was horrible. I don't want to do it. So I tell them, I said, you know, I want to do a VBAC. And they said, he's not going to let you. And I said, he's not my doctor. My doctor said I could do a VBAC. I'm going to be eight centimeters dilated when he gets here. I want to do a VBAC. I'm going to do a VBAC if I'm eight centimeters dilated when he gets here. The nurse is on the phone with the doctor. So I'm not yelling, but I am talking very loudly. I'm close to yelling. Mm -hmm. Okay. Cause my husband's like, you need to calm down. And I was like, I was like, you know, I want to do this procedure. And the, the nurse on the phone who's documenting all the information or supposed to be documenting all my information says to the other nurses, is he going to let her do a VBAC? And they're like, no, he's not going to let her do a VBAC. So I stop arguing because I, I just feel out of sorts. Like I'm out of control. I, I don't know what to do because I know in my head that I'm supposed to be able to refuse treatment, but I don't feel like anybody's letting me refuse treatment. And I'm scared, you know, I'm scared for me. I'm scared for my baby. I don't know what to do because nobody's listening to me. And so I, I stop arguing, but in my head, I'm thinking, okay, well, the doctor still has to come in. He has to go over the informed consent. So they can't take me into the OR. Like he mm -hmm. has to come do this. And so the anesthesiologist says, well, you have to have an epidural on tap for a VBAC. And I said, well, but I'm not really having a lot of contractions. I really don't need it yet. I don't need the epidural. And, and if you look at my records, the whole time they're trying to get me to do this epidural and I keep refusing. And so finally, when she said that, I was like, okay, I've heard that before. They made me do it with my second. Fine. I don't know They why. made you have an epidural. They didn't, but they, but they were like, well, you need to have an epidural on tap. And then they said I had to sit in the bed with the monitors the whole time and I couldn't deal with the contractions with my second baby. So I went ahead and did the epidural. I couldn't handle the contractions, but this one, yes, they told me I needed to have the epidural. Like I needed to have the epidural. And so I was like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do the epidural. And I didn't have my contacts in, you know, and I'm out of sorts because I just finished arguing. So I'm legally blind without my contacts. They have me sign the consent form. 
I didn't see the anesthesiologist underlying general anesthesia. She didn't tell me I was consenting to general anesthesia. I'm supposed to be consenting to the epidural if you look in my medical records, but she underlined general anesthesia. So, and there's also a really small place, like really small that says in there, oh, if you don't want to consent to the epidural for anything you can put on there. So I could have put, I only consent to it for a VBAC. So, you know, we progress, they start getting my husband ready for, oh, uh, before then, so they do the epidural. Um, she does a test of the anesthesia. Then they make my husband leave, which I thought was really weird to put in the catheter. And they inserted that into me and it was the most painful thing. I was in tears. I was like, what the heck is going on? You gave me an epidural. I should not be feeling this. So they didn't give me enough anesthesia and it hurt so bad. I finally figured it out later because he was already in the birth canal. So they, his, he was pressing against my urethra. So they had to jam that in there to get it, to get him out of the way for my urethra to get, or to get it in. And my blood pressure rose. I, I have a low blood pressure. I'm an exercise physiologist. I, I exercise every day. So my blood pressure is low. It rose to 171 over 94. My pulse rate went to 96, which doesn't seem high for most people, but mine is in the 50s. My resting heart rate is in the 50s. So when they put that in there, you can see on my records right after that's put in there, everything increases because I'm in so much pain from that. And I know to most people, that's not a big deal, like putting a catheter in. But to me, it was, we're going to pain inflict you because you just said you wanted to do a VBAC and we're not going to let you. So to me, it was another way of we have power over you and you don't have power over yourself because we're going to do this. Um, and they may not have meant it that way, but that's the way that it came across to me because that didn't happen in any of my other pregnancies. I did never felt the catheter. It was awful. It was awful. And then after that, they start getting my husband ready, you know, and he never comes and talks to me. He just kind of checks out at that point. He's just on the other side of the room. He just checked out. And I think that's common for men. They trust medical professionals and they check out. So he just checked out. They're getting him ready. And I'm sitting here, you know, and even on my paperwork, you can see my heart rate increasing from that low beats per minute, still go only going up to the 80s or 90s, but that's high for me at a resting level. And you just see it start to go up because I'm like, oh my gosh, they're going to take me to the OR. They're going to take me to the OR and I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. So they do, they take me to the OR. Um, I never get to meet the doctor before the OR. So I'm taken to the OR. Um, they separate me from my husband. They leave him outside the OR. They take me in. And you have to remember, I'm numb from the waist down. So I'm numb. I have a catheter. I have IVs in me. So it's not like I can fight. You know, yes, should I have started screaming out? But at that time, I believe they're just going to knock me out. I'm not going to get to see my baby be born. They're going to hurt my baby. They're going to hurt me. So I'm strapped to the OR table. And I don't think people realize what it's like to be strapped to an OR table. Your arms are out to the side in a T position. So when you feel protected, you want your arms and your things close to you. So you're not. Your arms are straight out to the side in a T position. You're confined. Um, they strap you down. And then your legs are separate. Can't see the can't see anything from the waist down. And they strap your legs down. And you're exposed from the waist down to 
a plethora. You don't even know how many. I don't know if it's 12. I don't know if it's 20. I don't know how many people they have to have in an OR. I'm a very private person. I don't like to be exposed. So I'm exposed. So I'm in this vulnerable position, exposed. No husband. And the doctor comes in that I have never met. And he says, hi, I'm Dr. R. Here's Dr. P, the assisting physician. Here's somebody else who's going to work on you. And they all say hi, and that's it. And um, we're, we're kind of talking because I'm freaking out at this point, right? Because I don't want to do a C-section. I don't understand why I'm already in the OR strapped down, mm -hmm. never having met the doctor. And I remember, I don't remember everything that I said to him. I remember it wasn't very long. It wasn't a very long dialogue. I remember telling him, I'm going to tell Dr. Gluck, this is not a good experience. This is not a good experience. This is not a good experience. And he's like, oh, we're having a baby. And he just leaves. He never goes over the consent form. He never goes over the alternative treatments. He never talks to me. He's gone. My husband said he just came and introduced himself briefly. Gone. That's it. He's going to go scrub in. And I don't know what to do. And they're working on me. Nobody's talking to me. Nobody's confirming my name, which they're supposed to do. Nobody's confirming the procedure, which they're supposed to do. This is all a timeout, right? Nobody is talking to me. They're prepping me. I'm numb from the waist down, and I have no idea what they're doing to my lower body. None. My first C-section, it was not that way. They told me that, hey, we're getting ready to prep you. We're doing the iodine solution to disinfect you. We're getting ready to shave you. I knew everything, and this one, nothing. Mm -hmm. I'm just this object lying on a table for them to cut up and they don't care and I can't scream out because I don't think anybody's going to listen to me and I'm scared and I remember they finally brought my husband in because he said he kept asking them you know I knew I want to go in I want to go in they're like you can't go in you can't go in they bring him in the anesthesi anesthesiologist is okay, well, we want to make sure we gave you enough anesthesia. You know, do you still feel that? And I'm like, yes, I still feel pressure. And she's like, well, you're going to feel pressure, but he's done a big cut. So if you didn't feel that, you're okay. And I remember probably because I'm stressed, they had to give me quite a bit of anesthesia, you know, because I kept saying I was feeling stuff, but I wasn't feeling the pain. I was just, you know, feeling their hands if they would squeeze my skin or things like that because I was so stressed out. So I had so much anesthesia, I'm trying to stay awake. Um, and I remember it was awful because the whole time in my head and I can't scream out and I was so frustrated because I can't scream out. I'm sitting there going, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And I remember as this doctor's cutting me up, Dr. R, he's having a personal conversation with Dr. P about the Olympic male gymnast who broke his tibia and I remember and I'm sitting there thinking I'm not even here like I'm not even here it doesn't matter I'm like this inconvenience or you know this I don't know but I'm not here because nobody's talking to me I mean he would tell me every so often oh yeah we're almost there and I remember just trying to stay awake enough to hear my baby cry because I wanted to make sure he was okay. <laughs> and then once he was okay, I don't remember much after that except being in the recovery room 
because I just wanted to make sure he was okay. Um, so I'm in the recovery room. You know, I, I recover uh, quickly from the epidural, so they let me go to my room. They finally bring my baby. He's fine. Um, he nurses fine, thank goodness. And, uh, you know, I, I'm given lots of, of medication, so I don't really, you know, it's the normal C-section stuff that I remember from my first one. But, you know, you're on a lot of pain meds, so you you, you don't know how things are going to turn out. You know, I'm I'm active, so I told the nurse, you know, if you want me to get up and walk, you better tell me the limitation because I am an exercise person, so I will keep pushing myself to walk. And so we stay the standard, you know, my doctor, the regular doctor, not the doctor who delivered me, my regular OB comes in, you know, and he kind of puts his hand across his face, like, I'm so sorry that I wasn't here, you know, I hope he treated you okay. And I really didn't say anything um, because I'm trying to still work out in my head what happened. Mm -hmm. I, I'm really not sure what happened. I had never experienced that kind of um, disregard for my autonomy in either of my other pregnancies. So I was in shock. I'm just trying to enjoy my son. Of course, I get released in two days, you know, because I can get up and walk around because I have a high pain tolerance. So I'm released and I come home. And when I don't have the, I don't know what they're called, but they put those circulators on so that you don't get blood clots. You know, since I don't have those on, my edema is ridiculous. A quick note from Kristen. Edema is severe swelling. I, I get home and this was one of the things that I discussed with my doctor. I said, I don't want to go through that edema of a C-section again. I don't want to go through the pain. And I want you to address my edema if we do, do end up doing a C-section with this. He and I had also discussed a VBAC. And he said that he would let me do a VBAC. So it was always in the back of my head that I could do or try another VBAC. So about a week later, I call the doctor's office because I have so much edema. Um, I have to prop myself upright. I can't breathe. I can't fit into my large maternity clothes. I'm crying every four hours. I, I don't know exactly what's going on. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. I'm, um, and I, of course, get the physician's assistant. And she just tells me this is normal. And I said, this is not normal. I did not have this in my first C-section. This is not normal. You need to address my edema. And the only thing she tells me is, well, if you can't breathe, you need to go to the hospital. <laughs> well, I couldn't breathe, but I'm not going to the hospital again. Not after what I've been through. I, I don't want to go to a hospital ever again. I, 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 I don't like to see doctors anymore. So then I'm supposed to see him, I think, in two weeks. And I start noticing that my abdomen is is so incredibly sore and it's not the c-section it's not the normal c-section i've had one i know i know what's supposed to happen my son just barely touches it and i am in immense pain my six-year-old touches it and i'm in immense pain and i and i'm like this is not normal this is way above this is all the way to my umbilicus so my belly button this this is not right and i'm still crying all the time because I, I, I know that something's wrong. I know the edema is not correct. I know that the pain that I'm having is, is not right. This is not normal. Um, and I'm, you know, and I'm still trying to figure out 
everything that happened of why the C-section happened because I know that I didn't want it and I know that it wasn't medically necessary. No one ever said emergency to me like this has to be done. And I know that I'm supposed to have the right to withdraw my consent. And so I'm, I'm just crying all the time and, and my kids don't understand. I was like, I hate my doctor and I don't know why this doctor did this. And, and they're trying to understand what's going on. And I call the doctor's office again. So probably two weeks later. And I said, I think I'm having postpartum depression and you need to tell the doctor and um, excuse my language. I said, I don't know what the fuck this doctor did to me, but I want an ultrasound because I want to make sure he didn't fuck me up on the inside. And that's what I said. And I'm not a curse. I don't cuss very much. And I was throwing the F bomb all the time. And so. Because you felt different. I felt different. I didn't know what was going on. And they never told my doctor about the postpartum depression. They scheduled the ultrasound. So when I went there, I had an ultrasound. And he's like, well, how are you doing? And I said, I'm not doing well. I said, you know, I, I'm doing better than two weeks ago. And he said, well, what happened two weeks ago? I said, I called your office like a maniac, telling them that I thought I had postpartum depression. But now I realize it's not postpartum depression. It's trauma from what happened. And he's like, well, what happened? And I said, I said, well, the doctor never came in and talked to me. I said, Dr. R never came in and talked to me. I said, the nurses didn't document that I said I wanted to do a VBAC. Shouldn't they have told the doctor? Shouldn't they have documented it? I said, why isn't it documented in my record? And he's like, yes, the doctor should have come in and talked to you. And, and I guess the nurses should have told him. And, and I said, well, I have a physician, a client who's a surgeon, and he told me that's medical malpractice which is not really medical malpractice, but it is medical assault and battery that you don't come in and talk to your client about or your patient about the risks, benefits, and alternative treatments before you take them in for a non-emergency medical procedure. And so we have this dialogue, and of course he, do he doesn't document any of it, and I just happened to tape one, but he was mad at me. He was mad at me that I was going to go talk to this other OB that delivered me that wasn't even in his practice that he didn't tell me wasn't in his practice because I asked, I said, I want to meet the other OB in case you're not on call. And he didn't tell me that he did call with two other doctors that weren't even in his practice. It's called cross calling. He didn't tell me. So it goes from there. And then um, I'm trying to schedule an appointment with the OB who delivered me, Dr. R. And he doesn't, he cancels the appointment. And I could kick myself daily for not taping the phone call because in New Mexico and Texas, it is legal to do that with one party and not tell them. Finally, he calls me back. I have all my medical records except my informed consent documents. The hospital would not give me all of my medical records. I had to go there three times. Actually, I still don't even have all my medical records, so I have to go a fourth time now. I don't have my fetal heart rate strips, I found out. So I don't have all my medical records when talking to this doctor. I wasn't expecting him to call me. We have our phone conversation. And the first thing I ask him is, why didn't you go over the informed consent document with me? And he said, oh, well, I thought everything was okay. So he admitted, I just don't have it on tape, which, which stinks. But he admitted that he did not go over the informed consent document with me on the phone. I said, why didn't you talk to me about a VBAC, the alternative treatment? He said, well, I only do VBACs for my patients. 
So he didn't even consider me his patient. I wasn't his patient because he wasn't in the practice. We didn't have that relationship. So um, even though he did call with Dr. G, my regular OB, I'm not his patient. So he didn't treat me like a, like his patient. And then we talked about quite a few things. Why, why do I have all of this sensory nerve damage? Because I figured out finally that it was sensory nerve damage that I had. And he said, oh, well, that's common in C-sections. Well, why isn't that on my informed consent document? It's not. That's a problem, I think. But in the medical community learning now, it's, it's not a big deal to have sensory nerve damage. It's not a big deal to them. It's a big deal for us as the patients, but it's not a big deal for a medical field. In the medical field, that's not a big deal. Oh, well, you have pain in your abdomen. You can't feel it. doesn't matter. And then at the end of our conversation, he told me, Mrs. Smith, you know, it doesn't really matter what you and Dr. G discussed. In the end, it's my call. And that's when I got angry. And I said, you know what? I didn't tape this conversation, but I will do whatever I can to complain against you. And that's when I started researching and finding out that this happens to women daily in the United States that it's a problem, that we're forced to do medical procedures all the time that we don't consent to or that we're coerced into consenting to. And that's when I started the process of doing my complaint with the medical board, doing my complaint with the hospital, then the later the joint commission, then later the nursing board, because I didn't want this to happen to anybody else. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with Jennifer Smith. This is Bertha Loud with my mom, Kristen Muscucci. My mom works at Berthman Opti. <laughs> this program is supported by attorney Susan Jenkins, a national advocate for midwives and birth activists specializing in business, governmental, and political issues related to birthing rights and the practice of midwifery. She can be reached at area code 866-686-1348. Would you like to support Birth Aloud Radio? Please contact us at birthaloudradio at gmail.com. You're listening to WLXU 93.9 LPFM Lexington. Lexington Community Radio. And this is Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. This is Birth Aloud Radio with Kristen Piscucci, and we're talking to Jennifer Smith today, who is a mom in New Mexico who went over the border to El Paso, Texas to have her third baby and withdrew her consent for a cesarean section, but was rolled into the OR anyway, and given surgery. She just told us her story, and now we're talking about what happened afterwards and the complaint process that she went through. So I contacted the hospital. It took a little bit of time to get to the correct person. The first person that I talked to um, within management, within the hospital, her administration, proceeded to tell me that I didn't have the right to withdraw my consent for a C-section and have a VBAC. She finally put me in touch with the risk manager who 
proceeded to tell me that informed consent is supposed to be gotten in the doctor's office. And I said, well, how is that supposed to work with a doctor that's not even in my regular OB's practice? And she's like, well, did you talk to your doctor about a C-section and a VBAC? And I said, yes, but we didn't discuss the risks because nobody expected me to go into labor three weeks early. I said, so we hadn't discussed the risks or the benefits to this. I hung up with her and luckily I, fitness, everybody goes to the gym, correct? So I have clients that are surgeons. I have acquaintances that are nurses that work in labor and delivery. So I contacted some of them and I said, this is what's being said to me. And they said, Jennifer, even if consent is gotten in a doctor's office, they still have to do it at the hospital for a non-emergency C-section. You can't just take a patient in. They said, you need to contact the Joint Commission and file a complaint. So I proceeded to email the risk manager and I said, I am um, very upset about our phone call today. I don't think anything's going to be done because you think that informed consent is supposed to be gotten in the doctor's office and not in the hospital before a non-emergency medical procedure. I have contacted the Joint Commission and found that your hospital is held to a higher standard, that informed consent was supposed to be obtained, that you were supposed, that your physician was supposed to conduct a medical exam to make sure I was ready for surgery. That was not even done. So. I could have had a problem that they didn't know about and they didn't even check to make sure that I was physically ready for surgery before they took me in, which is a joint commission patient safety requirement. So after that, the investigation was started, right? Because now they know that the joint commission is going to investigate them. Okay. That's the only reason I believe that my, that the risk manager decided to do the investigation. So I get a letter saying that they have started their investigation and they will let me know. I send my complaint in writing and I don't put all of it because again, I'm still trying to process everything that happened, but I put the major things that happened. At that time, I was more upset with the doctor than the nursing staff, even though the nursing staff failed to do what they were supposed to do as well. So it mostly, you know, it still talked about the nurses that were there, my complaint, but it didn't talk it talked more about the doctor not going over the informed consent. So then within the 60 day or 30 day notice, I can't, I can't remember how many days they have to finish their investigation. I get a letter. So I get a letter from the hospital that states your stated concerns. It was stated you verbalized to the labor and delivery staff members that once you wanted to consider having a, um, you wanted to consider having a VBAC once your cervix was noted to be six centimeters. Our review found an opportunity for improved communication between the nursing staff and the on-call obstetrician as the message was not relayed to him. Once the issue was brought to light, the unit director of labor and delivery department provided immediate coaching to the staff members. So not just one, staff members involved in regards to how patient requests are communicated to the physician and documented in the medical record. And then it says it was stated that the on-call physician did not perform a physical exam prior to surgery, that he did not obtain informed consent. And there was information provided by you that the documentation of the OB in, the, in your medical records was inaccurate 
as the time noted on the history and physical physician form and the consent for the C-section were completed at times when he was not at the hospital. So that's provided by me. No, that's your medical records. That's your nursing staff. That's his signature on those forms. That's the time he put on the forms. That's not me. I didn't make those up. That's what you have in my medical records. So he signed this consent form that he went over it with me at 6 a.m. He's not there. He's phone. His orders are phone read. If he were there, why would he not perform the C-section? He wasn't there. He's not documented till getting into the unit till 624. As soon as he's documented to get into the unit, they transfer me to the OR and they strap me to the table. But he can sign that document anytime he wants. I found out in a court of law, as long as I sign it, he can sign and date it for any time he wants, which I think is absolutely ridiculous because that's the only thing keeping him accountable to going over that form. He signed the medical that he went over the physical, that he conducted a physical exam on me at 345 in the morning. Well, then why is he, why is he calling for an update at 515 AM? Why are they calling him for, to give him an update that I'm in active labor now? And why is he trying to prescribe tributylin? Because he still doesn't want to come in and do the surgery till 7 a.m. So you're saying that he falsified the time? Yeah. He, well, he could write what the exam itself. Yeah. Yeah. He signed off on it at 3.45 a.m. How how can you be there? He signed off on the consent form at 6 a.m. But he's not there. So the only time that he could have gone over the consent form with me was when I'm strapped to an OR table shamelessly exposed from the waist down him looking over me and that's supposed to be free from coercion that's supposed to be a time where i can consider all of the alternative treatments if he would have even gone over them with me which he did not or ask me for my consent he didn't do any of it because he knows he doesn't have to because in a court of law he can get away with it so he can just keep doing it to other women he can do it as many times as he wants to because he knows he won't ever get caught as long as they can get your signature on that informed consent document, unless you have it tape recorded, they can do whatever they want to you. So that's all I get. And then I get another letter saying that the physician's review is completed. And that is what boggles my mind about the medical community is that they can know that the physician has done things that are unethical, that are completely wrong. And it never has to be released to the medical board. It cannot be released in a court of law. It is closed. It is confidential. So all I can know is that there was a physician's review completed. I don't get to know what happened in that. The joint commission isn't much better. I had to contact them, I don't know, numerous times, probably over 20 times. They have one customer service representative who is amazing, who would call me back and help me get things done. They had the incorrect email for me, which I don't understand because I emailed them probably 10 times. I had to release my information, let my information be released to the hospital before they would conduct an investigation. And then it was difficult for me to get the follow-up. They sent it to the wrong email two times. So finally they sent me a record in writing. And, And all you get is, oh, well, we looked at staffing issues. We looked at patient rights and responsibilities. And it's all generalized. You don't know what steps were taken. 
we have we have received from them in writing that that they have taken the steps necessary are are appropriate to what happened to you and that's it that's all you get and then i contacted the nursing board because i was like no you know what these nurses did what was wrong they were supposed to be my advocate they were supposed to withdraw my consent they were supposed to make sure the doctor came in and went over the informed consent with me that he did a physical examination that's their job their job if you talk to any nursing students they are taught in nursing school to be patient advocates and i understand it's hard because they are abused doctors talk down to them they don't respect them they may not have the management to back them up but it's still their job and they didn't do any of it they didn't document it the anesthesiologist all she wrote on her paperwork was patient was ordered to get the epidural for 7 a.m c-section but she was there when I'm saying I want to do a VBAC. She told me I had to have it for the VBAC. And her documentation is no, patient's ordered to get the epidural for 7 a.m. C-section. There's nothing in my medical records that say I wanted to do a VBAC. Nobody documented it. Now I have the, you know, the letter from the hospital that says, oh, yeah, you did. You did say that you wanted to do that. We didn't tell the doctor. We just took you into the OR. Oh, well. How, and how do they say that? Because they talked to their nurses and the nurse said, oh, yeah, she did say yeah, she wanted a VBAC. I just didn't write it down. I didn't write it down and I didn't tell the doctor. Yes. So I start the complaint with the nursing board and I do it against all of the nurses and the anesthesiologist. Of course, the only nurse that gets in trouble is the one documenting. So even though it said staff members in the letter, everybody else is covered up. So everybody else gets off. She's still under investigation a year later, a year later since I've done my claim, she still works at the hospital. Nobody got in trouble. So I'm waiting on that. No lawyer will take my case because they can't make enough money off of it because of the caps and because I signed the consent form and it's the doctor's responsibility to get consent. So even though the nurse was supposed to withdraw my consent and even though she used and allowed that doctor to use the consent form that I signed seven and a half hours earlier prior to the surgery, seven and a half hours prior to the surgery, and he signed it for a time that he's not even there, it doesn't matter because my word doesn't stand up against a physician's word. My husband's word, he was there, doesn't stand up against a physician's word. So I, I can't do anything legally. I, I can't do anything. So I finally decide I want to meet with the head of OB at the hospital and the CEO. So I call to do that because I'm very upset because again, all I have are these letters. I don't know anything else. I don't know anything that's changed. I find out that the nurse is still working there. And meanwhile, what, are, what were you going through emotionally or mentally? I feel violated. I, I feel, you know, I had to go into counseling soon after that. I mean, I would say December when I saw my doctor, when they wouldn't deal with me saying that I had postpartum depression and I figured out it was trauma, I went into counseling because I, I couldn't deal with it. I kept reliving over and over being strapped to the OR table you know, going over in my head, no, 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 I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I mean, crying profusely all the time, lashing out at my kids, lashing out at my husband because I, I don't understand and I'm angry, you know, and I'm, I'm angry for him not standing up for me. I'm, I'm angry at the doctor for what he did. I'm angry at my regular OB for being mad at me for filing all of these complaints. I can't focus. I'm researching all the time this nerve damage. Everybody keeps telling me, oh, it's going to resolve. It's going to resolve. It's going to resolve. And I knew it wasn't. And it's permanent. And it's never going to resolve. It's always going to be there. I taught a class 
Monday this week and the whole way home driving, I just feel like my abdomen's on fire burning up. And it's those nerves trying to send impulses to my abdomen and they don't function properly. And it's a whole section that will never have feeling again. For an unnecessary C-section, it's a constant reminder. I get electrical impulses through my abdomen just randomly. And maybe those will get better with time and maybe they won't. Nobody can tell me because it's sensory nerve and they don't know, they don't have an understanding. We have all of this medical technology, but we can't fix that. We can't fix motor neurons many times. At least I have all my motor neurons, but I don't have that. I have with my piriformis insertion muscle, I have problems with my round ligament and I didn't have any of this until this doctor performed the C-section. And I don't know if it's all related because I'm missing those sensory nerves and it's causing other problems, but it'll never go away. And the treatment is pain medicine and I refuse to do it. I may try acupuncture or other pain alternative treatments, but nobody can tell me if it'll get better. Nobody can tell me. Everybody knows it's not going to heal now. I'm 18 months out. Any neurologist that you talk to will say that it can't heal, but we can't assess it. We don't know how bad the damage is because your motor, ner- your motor nerves will take over when, I, when they try to stimulate that area of the abdomen because we have so many muscles in our abdominal region. So they can't tell me how bad the damage is. We don't know. Can I function? Yes. Do I function the same? No. I taught 15 classes a week before I had my, my baby. I teach five to eight, half the amount, because I never know if I'm going to have to get off my bike and stop teaching my class and start just coaching them. I never know how I'm going to feel afterwards. And again, the constant reminder, it's, it's emotional. It's frustrating. And I think the most frustrating thing is that I have no legal recourse. I can't do anything. I can't touch the hospital. I can't touch the nurses. I can't touch the doctor. I have to leave it up to the medical board who found him. Oh, well, you signed a consent form. So you didn't tell him. It's what you talked about with your other doctor. He said he did a physical exam in the OR. So he's either lying on the paperwork or lying to the medical board. But he he did nothing wrong. So he's fine. The nursing board, maybe one nurse will get in trouble, but maybe not. She's got the hospital lawyers now working for her. The joint commission, it's closed. The hospital, it's closed. There's nothing I can do. And I think what frustrated me after this last talk, trying to schedule a meeting with the CEO, was that they denied me. And she said, your case is closed. The CEO is out of town. The risk manager called me and she said, your case is closed. And I said, but you're still not answering my questions. Obviously, I wasn't prepared. I was hoping that it was the assistant and I was going to meet with the CEO and the head of OB and gynecology. So I wasn't expecting that phone call. And, you know, she told me that she was going to follow up and the CEO was out of town, which I knew, but that my meeting with them was going to be denied. And I said, but you haven't answered my questions. I still have more questions. Why was I taken into the OR if I withdrew my consent for the C-section and I said I wanted to do a VBAC? And she's talking and I said, you're still not answering my question. If I withdrew my consent for the C-section, why was I taken into the OR? And her response was, well, I feel terrible about what happened to you. So they know it happened. We have changed all of our procedures and policies, which is a huge thing. Okay, I'm glad. I hope, I hope it works. But why wasn't that in place when I was there? Why did your nurses not feel empowered to withdraw a consent and get you in touch with the doctor when you're withdrawing your consent? Why did they not know their role in the consent process that it's not their job to get consent. 
but they need to make sure that the doctor has gone over that to you. And that still bothers me. Even if the doctor has gone over the consent form, I still feel like if, it, if it's his job to get consent, then, then the nurses should not give you that form. He should have to be there, no matter what. Even if he went over the risks with you in the office some other time earlier, he should still have to be there at the hospital going over that with you before you are taken in for any surgery. I don't understand it. I, I still don't understand it. And I said, well, why did one nurse, only one nurse get in trouble? And what I'm talking about is the nursing board because she said medical staff members. So there was more than one, implying more than one. She's like, well, nobody got in trouble. There was just a, the, the young nurse who, who wasn't trained well enough. Well, again, is that my fault? So this happened to me because your nursing staff isn't trained. You don't have procedures and policies in place to know how to withdraw somebody's consent. And now they have a, a hierarchy where if the patient wants a procedure and the doctor refuses, then it has to go up higher within labor and delivery administration. But none of this was in place when I was there. So they know it happened. They know that they didn't have procedures and policies in place. And yet they're still not willing, you know, to do anything for what happened to me. And, and, it, and they won't because unless I can take them legally through a lawyer to a court of law, it doesn't matter. And that's sad because I'm, I am not a person who wants to do a lawsuit or who really believes in lawsuits, but now I see the validity in them. Because if a person empowered does not have a fear of a lawsuit or know that it's going to happen, they don't have to care. They don't have to care what happens to their patient. They don't have to care about whether their procedures and policies aren't up to par. They might have changed them a little bit because of the joint commission, but I don't know that they've changed them enough to prevent this from happening. Are they going to prevent a doctor from lying to a patient about fetal heart rate, about having to have an epidural, about having to have IVs, all of the things that, are, that I've learned that aren't evidence-based? I don't think that it's changed any of those things. So I think women still going into that hospital will still be very much coerced into C-section. Because in 2015, according to LeapFrog, the hospital that I was at had a 45% C-section rate. The doctor who delivered me, I found out later from Improving Birth, you know, because you can find out now their statistics, 71% C-section rate. My doctor, I didn't do a good job, 80% C-section rate, 80%. And now this hospital won't even release their stats. So in 2016, 2017, we don't know what their C-section rates are. I bet they haven't gone down. And then to make it worse, so my insurance company paid $30,000, right, for my C-section. That was just the hospital bill. That wasn't the anesthesiologist, which was, you know, 2,500. That wasn't the doctor that came in to see me for those visits, another 2,500. And then a year later, I start getting EOBs from my insurance company and they're trying to get more money. They're resubmitting the claim. And I found out that they could actually back bill me for the difference. And of course, I'm cursing at my insurance company. Are you kidding me? And they said, yes, and we, you know, we can file an appeal on your behalf, but we have to get special permission because it's after the year mark now. Luckily, they closed it, but that brought up again, wow, so if this isn't about money, why are you trying to get more money? So I, I just feel helpless because there's not a lot I can do. I mean, trying to advocate. I'm thankful for your radio show. I'm thankful for your website. I'm thankful for 
improving birth, evidence-based birth, all the groups that are trying to get this information out here. But women don't realize how common it is. When I tell people, I think they think I'm lying. Or, oh, hers is just a, a one-time, you know, mistake. It, it just happened. And it's not. And, and that's what I'm so scared for. I, you know, I want to educate my sons if they get married. Hey, if we don't change this, <laughs> you have to know about this. You have to be educated. My friends that have daughters, I, I worry for them because I don't want anybody to go through this and have the emotional, psychological damage. And it affects every facet of your life. I mean, I hate going to the doctor now. I re-inform consents. I won't sign them. I question now because they put crazy things in those informed consent documents that people don't realize um, that you're consenting to. Like in New Mexico, they're trying to make us give up our right to record. They're trying to allow us to let them videotape or take pictures of our body parts or our children's body parts in the consent forms, as long as it's for medical reasons. And I believe that's the doctor who got in trouble for the gymnastics team. People don't realize, and I didn't realize, that yes, we do have control to an extent, but we also have to protect ourselves and being able to record and video is one of those protections and not to give up that right, at least here in New Mexico and Texas, because we have that ability, not all states do. And then now just working on how can I advocate, trying to meet other women who have, who have gone through this for support from them and support to them. So I've met some via Improving Birth, via Facebook, to have that support because it's difficult to understand if you haven't been through it. But it, it's very frustrating that we, that we have all of these laws in the, in the United States to protect our autonomy. But when it comes down to it, they don't because we can't take them to court. We can't do it. And, and that's scary and frustrating. Yeah, it's like, what's the point of having a right if you can't enforce it? Yeah, I, I just don't understand that concept. Well, we're out of time. I did want to say that when you said, you know, you felt like you couldn't do anything, that you are doing something, you're telling your story. Right. And that's a really big deal in itself. Yeah, yes, it is. It's, it's difficult for any of us because nobody believes us, I think, or very few people believe. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I know that's difficult. People don't understand that, that telling a story about a trauma is revisiting the trauma. And that's very difficult. That's, that's hard work. So thank you. Thank you for doing that. And I hope that it gives other women courage to do the same. Yes, I hope that we will all stand up and come together and say no more. Thank you. Thank you. This has been Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. If you'd like to reach me with questions or show ideas or anything else, you can email me at birthaloudradio at gmail.com. Thanks for being here with us. We'll be back every other Sunday at 1 p.m. on WLXU. We'll see you next time.